Hello. Welcome to Science Factual. Prepare yourself for factual download. Sequence commencing. How far can we see? It depends on what we're looking for. If we're looking at human history, we can't see very far because human history is a chaotic thing. Small changes have big results, unpredictable in direction. But if we're looking at something that is essentially simple, such as stars and galaxies and things like that, then it is possible to look far, far ahead. We may be wrong, but it is possible to make a case for something that might happen 10 to the 100 years in the future, one with 100 zeros after it. In fact, that's what I do in the last essay. That's why I call it Far As Human Eye Could See. It comes from Loxley Hall by Tennyson, of course. Then I looked into the future far as human eye could see, saw the something of the other and the wonders yet to be, and so on. Hey folks, this week we're just going to jump right into it. No opening music because books don't have a soundtrack. At least that I know of. No, what you just heard were the musings of the author behind the novel we're covering in this week's episode, Isaac Asimov. I'm your host, Reese Hendrick, and you're listening to Science Factual, the show that delves into interesting facts behind your favorite sci-fi. This week is a first for Science Factual, as we're in fact covering a novel, Isaac Asimov's 1972 classic, The Gods Themselves. I'm excited to get into the storyline, characters, and their relationships, as well as a dive into Asimov as a writer and historian. There's also going to be a great interview with the very funny Jamie Carbone, Portland comic and fellow super nerd. He likes comic books. We got to talking out front of Pizza Schmitza on Northwest 21st in downtown Portland before the open mic that takes place there weekly on Sundays starting at 7. In the meantime, I think it's necessary to transmit a peri-universal spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. If you're not familiar with Isaac Asimov, well, you're about to be. And if you haven't read The Gods Themselves, that's okay. Not everybody has the time to read every book. I know I don't, and I get that. So the aim of this episode is for you to walk away with a working knowledge of the main events of the storyline so that you don't even have to read the book in order to understand the plot. Isn't that nice? Before I get started, I'd like to acknowledge the sources for this episode, which I typically reserve for the end, but this time I gleamed very heavily from Wikipedia because if it's on Wikipedia, it must be true. So I took a lot from their elongated plot summary as it does describe the events that take place in fairly good order with insights into the motivations behind the novel. So let's start with those before getting into the plot. In a letter from February 12th, 1982, Asimov identified this book as his favorite science fiction novel. He loved the novel so much that his short story, Gold, one of the last he wrote in his life, describes the efforts of fictional computer animators to create a, quote, compudrama from the novel's second section, which we'll get into in just a minute. Asimov's inspiration for the title of the book and its three sections was a quotation from the play The Maid of Orleans by Friedrich Schiller, Mit der Dummheit kampfen Golter selbstvergebens, or Against Stupidity, the Gods Themselves Contend in Vain, quoted in the book itself. Asimov describes a conversation in January 1971 where Robert Silverberg had to refer to an isotope, just an arbitrary one, as an example. Silverberg said plutonium-186. There is no such isotope, said Asimov, and such a one can't exist either. Silverberg dared Asimov to write a story about it. Later, Asimov figured out under what conditions plutonium-186 could exist and what complications and consequences it might imply. Asimov reasoned that it must belong to another universe with other physical laws, specifically different nuclear forces necessary to allow a plutonium-186 nucleus to hold itself together. He wrote down these ideas intending to write a short story, but his editor Larry Ashmead asked him to expand it into a full novel. As a result of that request, Asimov wrote the second and third parts of the book. In his autobiography, Asimov stated that the novel, especially the second section, was the, quote, biggest and most effective over-my-head writing that I had ever produced, end quote. I can speak to the fact that it does take a base knowledge of chemistry, physics, and astronomy, and a little bit of nerdiness in there in order to flow easily through the dialogue. Okay, here's the breakdown of the novel in its three parts. 
The first part, which is entitled Against Stupidity, takes place on Earth almost a century after the quote, Great Crisis, where ecological and economic collapse reduced the world's population from 6 billion to 2 billion. Radiochemist Frederick Hollum discovers that a container's contents have been altered. He finds out that the sample, originally tungsten, has been transformed into plutonium-186, an isotope that cannot occur naturally in our universe. As this is investigated, Hollum gets the credit for suggesting that the matter has been exchanged by beings in a parallel universe. This leads to the development of a cheap, clean, and apparently endless source of energy known as the pump, which transfers matter between our universe, where plutonium-186 decays into tungsten-186, and a parallel one, governed by different physical laws where tungsten-186 turns into plutonium-186, yielding a nuclear reaction in the process. Get it? The development process grants Hollum high position in public opinion, winning him power, position, and a Nobel Prize. Physicist Peter Lamont, while writing a history of the pump about 30 years later, comes to believe that the impetus of the pump was the effort of the extraterrestrial, quote, paramen. Lamont enlists the help of Myron Bernaski, an archaeologist and linguist known for translating ancient writings in the Etruscan language to prove his claim by communicating with the parallel world. They inscribe symbols on strips of tungsten to establish a common written language as the strips are exchanged for ones made of plutonium-186. As Bernowski works, Lamont discovers that the pump increases the strong nuclear force inside our sun and thus threatens both universes by the explosion of Earth's sun and the cooling off of the one in the parallel universe. Bernowski receives an acknowledgement from the parallel universe that the pump may be dangerous. Lamont attempts to demonstrate this to a politician and several members of the scientific community, but they refuse his request. Lamont decides to tell the paramount to stop the use of the pump, but Bernowski reveals that they have been in contact not with the other side's authorities, but with dissidents unable to stop the pump on their side. The last message was begging Earth to stop. That brings us to the second part, the gods themselves, which is set in the parallel universe where because the nuclear force is much stronger, stars are smaller and burn out faster than in our universe. It takes place on a world orbiting a sun that is dying. Because atoms behave differently in this universe, substances can move through each other and appear to occupy the same space. This gives the intelligent beings unique abilities. Time itself appears to flow differently in this universe as well. The events take place in an apparently short space of time in the lives of the inhabitants, while more than 20 years pass in our universe, and a long feeding break of one of the characters translates into a two-week gap on Lamont's side. Like the first part of the novel, this section has an unusual chapter numbering. Each chapter except the last is in three parts, named 1A, 1B, and 1C, and so on. Each reflects the viewpoint of one of the three members of the triad, central to the story's theme. The inhabitants are divided into dominant hard ones and subject soft ones, the latter having three sexes within the filled roles for each sex. There are rational or lefts, those are the logical and scientific sex identified with masculine pronouns. Uh, emotionals or mids, these are the intuitive sex identified with the feminine pronouns. And the parentals or rights, uh, they bear and raise the offspring and are identified with masculine pronouns, um, although they have no ability to blend their bodies with others except with the help of one or both of the other sexes. So hence the triad relationship. All three genders are embedded in sexual and social norms of expected and acceptable behavior in their society. Uh, they actually live through means of photosynthesis, and sexual intercourse is accomplished by bodily collapse into a single pool known as melting. Uh, reminds me a little bit of Odo for, and the founders from uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, but... We'll get into all of that in another episode for sure. Dua, one of the characters, is an oddball emotional who exhibits traits normally associated with rationals, resulting in the nickname Leftum. Uh, while being taught by Odin, uh, she also discovers the supernova problem that Lamont uncovered in the first section. Outraged that the pump is uh, allowed to operate, she attempts to halt it, but cannot persuade her own species to abandon the pump. Given that their own sun and all other stars in the universe can no longer provide the energy necessary for reproduction, they consider the possible destruction of Earth's sun worthwhile if it might provide a little bit more reliable source of energy for them. 
Driven by an innate desire to procreate, Trit, the parental of the triad, at first asks Odin, uh, the uh, third member of the triad with Dua, to persuade Dua to facilitate the production of their third child. When this fails, Trit steals an energy battery from the pump and rigs it to feed Dua through photosynthetic energy, which stimulates the triad uh, into a total melt, resulting in conception. Dua discovers this betrayal and escapes into the caves of the Hard Ones, where she transmits a warning message received by Lamont. This effort nearly exhausts her mortally, but she is found by her triad. Here it is revealed that the Hard Ones are not a separate species, but the fully mature form that the triads eventually coalesce into permanently. Each melt briefly allows the triad to shift into its hard form during the period they can't later remember. Odin convinces Dua that the hard one that they will become will have influence with the others to stop the pump, but as their final metamorphosis, the true meaning of, quote, passing on, uh, begins, Dua realizes, and too late to prevent the irreversible union, that her own triad's hard form is the scientist Esvald, who is bent on making the pump remain operational. And that shifts us to the third and final part, which is uh, referred to as Contend in Vain. The third part of the novel takes place on the moon. Lunar society is diverging radically from that of Earth. The lower gravity has produced people with a very different physique. Their food supply is manufactured from algae and distasteful to inhabitants of Earth. Some lunarites want to further adapt their bodies to life on the moon, but Earth has outlawed genetic engineering decades prior. Lunarites are beginning to see themselves as a separate race, although procreation between them and Earth people is quite common. Sex, however, is problematic since an Earthborn person is likely to injure his or her partner due to loss of control. Sexual morals are loose and nudity is not taboo. The plot centers on a cynical middle-aged ex-physicist named Dennison, briefly introduced in part one as the colleague and rival of Hallam, whose snide remark drove Hallam to investigate the change in his sample of tungsten and eventually develop the pump after discovering plutonium-186. Finding his career blocked by Hallam, Dennison leaves science and enters the business world, becoming a success. Dennison, independently of Lamont, deduced the danger of the electron pump. He visits the moon colony, hoping to work outside of Hallam's influence using technology that the Lunarites have developed. He is helped by a Lunarite tourist guide named Celine Lindstrom. She is secretly an intuitionist, which is a genetically engineered human with superhuman intuition, who is working with her lover, Baron Neville. They are both part of a group of political agitators who want independence from Earth. The group particularly wants to be allowed to research ways to use the electron pump on the moon. Although solar energy is plentiful enough to power their underground habitats, Neville wants to live entirely underground and never have to venture out onto the surface. With the scientist's help, Dennison gets access to the technology and proves that the strong force is indeed increasing and will cause the sun to explode. Dennison continues his work, tapping into a third parallel universe that's in a pre-Big Bang state called a cosmic egg or cosmeg, where physical laws are totally opposite to those of Dua's universe. Matter from the cosmeg starts with very weak nuclear force and then spontaneously fuses as our universe's physical laws take over. The exchange with the second parallel universe both produces more energy at little or no cost and balances the changes from the electron pump, resulting in a return to equilibrium. However, Selene clandestinely conducts another test showing that momentum can also be exchanged with the cosmic. Dennison catches her and forces her to admit her secret purpose. Neville thinks the momentum exchange can be used to move anything without using rockets, including the moon itself. He wants to break away from Earth in the most complete way possible. Dennison is appalled, although he sees the potential of the technology to make travel within the solar system a bit easier, and to the stars, possible. When Selene discusses Neville's plan with the rest of the group, most of them agree that moving the entire moon will be meaningless, and building self-sufficient sublight starships would be a lot better. A later public vote goes against Neville as well. Hallam is ruined by Dennison's revelations. Celine and Dennison become a couple. Having received permission to conceive a second child, Celine requests Dennison to become his father. The novel ends with them deciding to try working around the sexual incompatibility problem. 
I love that the article abruptly ends with that statement, as the novel seems to end a bit abruptly itself after its climax concerning the larger events in the novel which had already transpired. The conclusion is left to an intriguing yet relatively mundane discussion alluding to the fact that life takes place outside the confines of any given story. Alrighty folks, up next we have an awesome interview with local Portland comedian Jamie Carbone. We sat down on a rainy Sunday evening outside of the Schmitza mic that takes place there at their 21st Street location in downtown Portland. That mic is typically run by Amanda Lynn Deal, a great Portland comic and overall person, but this past week it was co-hosted by the very funny Kayla Evans and Chris Hudson, who you'll remember from episodes 2 and 15 of Science Factual. So without further delay, here's Jamie. Well, I can pivot as needed, depending well, on volume. And, the, and that's what makes you a great performer. Yes. Is it, I, to can, know how to pivot my voice as yeah, needed. Yeah. As needed. Throw your voice. Character. One of the one of the premier character actors of our age. I'm sitting with Jamie Carbone. Yeah, well known. We're, 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 we're literally sat out front of Pizza Schmitza. So if you hear various U-Hauls going by, what does this one say? This one's all about Indiana. Correct. I don't, you know, I used to have a, I had a joke for years about, uh, about how it's fucked up those U-Hauls have fun facts on this. Oh, can I cuss on this? Yeah, of course, okay, please. Cool, I cool. encourage it. I did not want to whisper. About how there was, there was a, you maybe have seen the design about how it says there were stone tablets found on, uh, in North America, uh, like a century <laughs> earlier than previously believed. Find out more at U-Haul.com. And I'm like, who the fuck is going to U-Haul.com? To research their sweet Viking facts. Well, I, I thought it was more like uh, like pre-Mormon artifacts where it's like, oh, yeah, you the find plates. out more and then you can end up like at an LDS website. I mean, I think that's more <laughs> of the Hobby Lobby move to be oh, like, ooh, yeah. you have old cuneiform. Or Ancestry. Ancestry is yeah. like, we we saw in your past. By the way, do you know about <laughs> this the, person, the teachings of a, of a Joseph Smith? Right, and then you learn and then you become a better person because mm-hmm. then you get to go to heaven. Yes, and they're doing great work at Ancestry. You know that that whole thing is that they're they're uh, baptizing people in the Mormon faith posthumously. Is that true? I'm pretty sure that's true. I don't know how they can do that and have it. Well, work. they can do whatever they want. I guess. I mean, I guess I could just say you're baptized in rain if I gave it a blessing, but that's you know not how anything works. I ordained my good friend as a master of Wicca so that he can um, officiate. Uh, yeah, officiate. Yeah. yeah. I thought you said it. No, I, he, I, I, I ordained him oh, okay. through a new, li- new, or- new Life Ministry. Is that the one where you pay something online to you do pay, it? You pay $8, and yeah. I got that from a friend's episode. Joey goes online. I remember this, that this episode, is, to very, Mary. Very proto-internet Easter egg. Yeah. For them to know how to do that alone right. is impressive. For Joey to know how to do For Joey to know how to operate a computer. I, yeah, that's a fair point. Well, I feel like he's around Chandler a lot. Maybe Chandler helped him do it. I don't think we watch him do it. We might, though. No, the only thing I helped... I think, doing... I think Chandler helped Joey do with the internet was look at some porn. That's fair. Well, wasn't else, he so. also dressed in army fatigues when he led that wedding? Because he had come off the stage set, a set for something? Oh, that's right. He was. Yeah, he was at that, that uh, the episode with Gary Oldman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or Oldman. Yeah, he was when, in a when, Gary uh, Oldman movie. Yeah, when uh, he, 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 he enunciates a lot, so he spits and yeah. like, having a spitting match back and forth. It's actually a really funny episode. I have not watched Friends in a very long time. Well, that's okay, because that's not what we're here to discuss. Yes, correct. Thank we're, God. We're, we're here to discuss the literal opposite. Uh, uh, debate. Can, arguably, yes. Which is uh, The Gods Themselves correct. by Isaac Asimov. Yes. The 1972 novel, sci-fi novel. Oh, it was 72. Okay. Yeah, 1972, which does that not bring another level of Yeah, because the 70s were very much a, like, a fear element to yes. it all, and that oh, definitely... Yeah makes sense for a lot especially with like all the you know the the politics not only on earth but like between the earth and the moon and even on the para the para universe well right like the concept of superpowers and their will yeah right like or at least the powers that be and their will right because it wasn't like there wasn't specifically i mean even even moon and the moon did not seem particularly powerful but definitely felt no. like the socioeconomic powers, you know what I mean? Sure. Like, it was definitely like a, hey, we listened to Hallam because he made this big thing. And 
it, that like, mattered. Your placement in science is what mattered more yeah, than anything. Right, yeah. Well, and that's the whole, like, that's. I think that's why they set up the first part with starting with chapter yeah, six. I think and then they, they keep kind bouncing, of come back. bouncing back and forth. Which I don't know uh, if I've ever read a book that old that has, like, an in media res beginning, which I found to be uh, a cool way to start it, to be perfectly honest. Well, Asimov's writing style had it, it evolved over the years right. from when he was writing short stories for uh, for magazines right. to, like, you know, little novels and then, you know, other things like that. So, you know, was, I would say, a pioneer in a lot of ways. I absolutely especially, agree. especially with writing. And if we want to talk about having, like, this, this dual vision of society... Yeah. Being Russian born and American raised. Yeah, you definitely have very contrasting backgrounds. Cold War lens. Yeah, I mean, you also have, like, not even just from the Cold War, but just from, like, how drastically different it was being raised. And, you know, like, that was, like, the golden era of capitalism, you know, like the post baby boom compared to, you know, the Russian struggle, Mm. comparatively. So it's just interesting to see both and then make a dude who writes, you know, hard sci fi. And I would definitely, you know, like how people say, you know, like the Black Sabbath and other bands, like they started metal. Yeah. Like Asimov, I think, started hard sci-fi. I think you could easily make that argument, yeah. especially because he, and it's, because, it, you know, arguably hard sci-fi is not nearly as big of a genre as it was then. Right. Um, and not to say it won't come back, but uh, it definitely felt like then it was almost, he was, for a, for a science fiction writer, yeah. he was a rock star in that Oh, regard. for sure, yeah. And like, there were very few. I mean, you know, you have Bradbury. Right. There's, there's another guy that I would definitely put in that category. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, like, it, it, oftentimes, these guys had pretty regional, or I would say genre-based yes. notoriety. You know, but... I think Asimov is a little bit more ubiquitous, right? In the in the you know the literary world, right? Well, I would say because of his prototyping a lot of science fiction, for sure. Um, the Foundation series, yes, exactly. That's the, basically the, what I was going to. The robot series, the robot rules are. Yeah. I yeah. would argue, oh, yeah. Yeah. because people are like, "What are robots?" Oh, I don't. Well, this guy wrote a lot about them, yeah. And because he came up with his rule of three, and I feel like that almost inundated the whole genre as a whole because people like robots do need rules this guy came up with pretty good ones let's just keep using his yeah well and but it also forced people to kind of you know rethink of what sentience is artificial intelligence like this that i think has given a rise to another subgenre. i I would call it like uh, a parallel genre to robots and robotics yeah like because they they have to coexist right Um, you can't have one without the other right Last episode was Star Trek The Next Generation right. Part 2. We're talking about data. Yes. And, you know, like, d- does data have rights? You know, I, I would say yeah. Yes, I would say sentience grants rights, yeah, personally. I would, yeah, I agree. Um, even, if we, even if we can't communicate in the same language, if, if an animal is able to convey a certain idea yeah. through emotion, even, I would grant that sent- higher-level sentience. I mean, that is, that is legitimately something I struggle with, like, mm-hmm. when it comes to, like, I feel gross eating pork. Um, Or, like, cows have best friends. And I'm just like, oh, that fucking... I... But, like, also, I hate birds, so I don't have a problem with eating chicken. It's a whole... It is, sincerely, a moral thing that I try not to think about. I think there's 20 billion chickens on Earth. That seems like both a a lot and not that many. Right. When you think about it. Well, but my point is, is that we could end a lot of the world. Sure, sure, with just... Well, I mean, don't get me started on that, buddy. So the, we could absolutely end the world's hunger if, like, capitalism wasn't choking everything. Mm-hmm. But I could talk about that all day. Well, that is what we're going to talk about to a large yeah. degree. Because, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the book speaks to that in so many ways. Like, okay, like, here's this here's this energy source that we kind of stumbled upon. Yeah. And it is free, clean energy. Yeah. So, but it... The post-scarcity society, even though it has, like, expanded to the moon right. and, like, you know, all this, that, and the third, it still comes at a detriment. Like, and, and it's, I think it's a commentary on that there is no ethical consumption. No, I, I'm kind of, I mean, I would argue there's no ethical consumption under most forms of any or kind of period. political, yeah, yeah. yeah. Without without hyper advanced technology that automates yes. everything, yeah. at some level you're going to have to explore. There's always your, a victim. There's always a victim. Yeah, um, and that was like I mean that was something that kind of, clearly we're kind of talking about in the story is that something had happened. 
They yeah. talked about how the the population had dwindled down to two billion. Yeah, the Great Crisis. Yes, and they did not yeah. active. And I don't know if he's written other stories in this, you know, universe. It wouldn't surprise me if so he did. I was I was actually looking into this. Yeah. Do all of Asimov's books take place in the same universe? Yeah, I, I mean, to a large degree, they do. Okay, so yeah. there, there's probably you know maybe that just and I like that. I like when you make this uh, world yeah. where you have threads and other stories, but they're not necessarily pertinent here. Um, as opposed well, to the MC, which just kind of shoves it all down your throat. Right. So, well, and let me ask you this. Uh, you, I think that, that The Gods Themselves is actually a great book for adaptation. I agree. I think, one, it's, you can, honestly, you could even do it conceivably as even like a stage play. There's not yeah. a lot of, yeah. uh... Well, it's, it's of, already set into three acts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's not a lot of characters. I mean, like, even if you think the the second act, the on the para-universe, is something that might be hard for audiences to grasp, you could excise that no. and still be able to do it. If though. we're about to get spoon-fed three more avatars, I think that we can deal I with, agree. you know, like... And the second act is my favorite act of the book. Also. Yeah, oh, same. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so are you familiar... Are, did you watch any uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine? No, the only Star Trek I've ever really watched is original in TNG. Okay. There, there's a character named Odo, and he's... Oh, I, I'm familiar with okay, Odo. so yeah, the, yeah. the changeling thing yeah. with the, the trifecta, like, melding together, yeah, yeah. and, like, the fact that, like, how they photosynthesize, yeah. all of these different aspects is so cool, because, like, yeah, like, we want to think about, speaking of Star Trek Universe, body humanoids. Yeah. The likelihood of that being the case is it's pretty insane. Slim. Pretty insane, pretty yeah. yeah. Yeah, So, you know, like, having, like, a, a semi-corporeal or, like, a... Yeah, I like how they were vague about, like, they they definitely let, they gave you a rough idea of what these characters kind of look like, but they definitely relied very much on letting your mind's eye create them, and I personally appreciated that. I do, too. Yeah, I like, um, I like it when there's a, they give you traits, but not the whole picture, because that makes me, like, I feel more attached, because I have, like, it's more memorable, because I have this idea... And that idea is what I recall immediately, yes. as opposed to if they told me what it was, I'll read it, aspects of it will stick with me, I guarantee you I don't keep the whole picture. But if I create the picture, that stays with me. And it's good writing. Yes, it re- and people don't people don't want, need to be spoon-fed. Yeah. No. Let them no. do some of the work. And I'm not like, and, and not to shit on like graphic novels and adaptations and stuff like that, but like I loved Animorphs as a kid. Because oh, they same. would they would describe like the aliens. Dude, I had a crush on Tobias. Who didn't? He was a who doesn't want a nice yeah. bird boy. Yeah. Um, they described the aspects in such a way where it was done that they gave you an idea of like, hey, they like the, the what was it? The uh, taxon was that it? The the worm monsters, oh, not yeah. the hork bajir, but the other ones. No, yeah, yeah. Um, the way they described, they talked about like their undulating legs and stuff like that, and the way their mouths move. But they didn't tell you quite. And I had this very strong mental picture for them that even though later like. Official art did yeah, yeah, there was art of them, right. but that did not matter to me. Right. I, I was, I had my image, and that is what I love. Is I think that more people need to do stuff like that when it comes to writing because that allows, like I think that's why Harry Potter has such a loyal fan base for sure. Because these people were like, I have an idea of Hogwarts, yeah, and it's not the movie idea necessarily, and maybe it is for some of them, and that's fine. But like, I, I have an idea of how this school is, and that to me makes the school more real. You know? Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, well, it's more real to you. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not like literally real. Yeah. No. <laughs> I mean, you know. Maybe for maybe for some people. Come, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and it's like I was I was not to go dark with it, but I was talking with somebody about suicide, and they yeah. they put it to me this way. They were like, suicide is the ultimate form of homicide. Sure. Because you're killing your entire reality. Yeah, you're killing everything you have created in that response. That makes a lot of sense. And and like so, you know that. For, for people to not have an imagination, like, you're just walking around dead. I don't understand people who don't. Like, anytime yeah. somebody can't extrapolate things for themselves, I'm like, oh, you're boring. Yeah. To, to me, it's, it's almost like you are a robot because you just take the data you get and you... And, of course, they have their own lens they apply it through, but they're not, like, experimenting no critical, critical with it. Yes. Or, or, you know, like, just... Letting your mind go yeah. and form imagery. Let your mind. I need. I, more people need to be willing to do that. It's to I just think more people need to be willing to take psychedelics, particularly yeah, acid. Yeah, I would agree. Because the revelations that I get on acid, and just hallucinogenics in general, but particularly acid. I mean, 
Well, even like if you just it's do a mushroom a tea, sure, that'll still open your mind to other possibilities. Totally. And I, I mean, I, I, I don't do hallucinogens anymore because I feel like I did them a little too much. Okay. And now I feel like I need my brain to. What is too much? I was getting to a point where it was causing more anxiety than it was uh, mind openness. Okay. And and I, and if I ever reset and decide to come back, cool. If I don't, also cool. Yeah. But I feel like I got mostly what I needed out of them, sure. which was critical thinking. Yeah. Well, um, and that, that is one of the most valuable things uh, that I think most people glean from it. It's not about seeing cartoon figures. No, I mean, don't get me wrong. That rules. Yeah. yeah. That's definitely fun. It's about... It's about... Sync up the wall to... Yeah. Yeah, or Dark Side of the Moon yeah. to Wizard of Oz yeah. and have a fun time. That's sure. cool. But like, That's not know, what it's there for, man. It's there for also if, opening and this, this isn't a dig on schizophrenics. If you're if you're listening to this, you're schizophrenic, you know somebody's schizophrenic, don't let them take a bunch of LSD. It's not good. Sure. It's not good for them. Yeah, don't. Yeah, I would agree um, with that. Ketamine. You know? Yeah, but also don't let them take too much ketamine because it could no, also ruin their him, life. You no, know, take them to a doctor's office on yeah. the Wednesday afternoon and let them trip balls. Yeah, have a, have nice a time. fun time. Yeah, exactly. It's a nice time. All right. Well, let's let's get to some questions. All right, Jay- go for it. Jamie, what's your Instagram? My Instagram is my dad gets mad. <laughs> All one word. I started it because it was just pictures pictures of me saying stuff that my dad hated, and then taking a photo of him immediately, and then uh, I moved uh, immediately. I immediately moved to Chicago away from him. And then uh, years later, I moved uh, to the other side of the country. So now uh, I maybe post one of those every time I go home. But for the most part, I just like the handle. So yeah, it's a good it. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a solid handle. Uh, how did you get started in stand-up? I, so I didn't know stand-up was something people could just start doing. <laughs> I legitimately, I thought you had to like... <laughs> you need like, a, like a, a, a note. Yeah, or like, you know, just like maybe people bring you in kind of thing. Sure, like, okay. But so I, I was in college, like mafia. kind of yeah. like a comedy mafia. So I, I was obsessed with comedy my whole life. Um, it was very much. I have like strong memories of hanging out in my grandmother's bedroom with Comedy Central on because she had Comedy Central. We didn't have Comedy Central at home. And I would just and we were up in my grandparents house a lot. Premium blend. Yeah. My premium blend, the half hours. Yeah. Um, what was the uh, the shorties watching shorties? Shorties Literally. watching shorties. Yeah. yeah. Basically, yeah. anytime because that was what Comedy Central mostly was because it was like. You know, early nineties. Sorry, late nineties, early twenties. Yes, and it was beautiful <laughs> for it. Um, but I have, I, I, there are people. I've worked with a few people that I watched as a kid, and I was just like, "Fuck yes, this rule." But it's like also crazy because I remember these specials for half hour people that I loved as a kid, and I'm like, "Where is this person now?" And they, I, I've never interact. I don't. I've never heard anybody talk about them. So it's just crazy how like some people stick with it, some people don't. Um, well, and I, some people are also just like perpetual road comics. Yeah, like, that's very true. And I'll like, never, uh, and they just keep to the south Stan or something. Hope or yeah, road work with. Um, oh, David Tell. David Tell. Yeah, David Tell or like Todd Berry. You could like Todd you could Barry, list yeah. names of people yeah. who aren't like home names, but comedians should yeah. know. Oh, should know. Yeah, um, yeah. should she were there? Is, should it know. Is, it is required reading. Um, I had someone the other day who didn't know who Margaret Cho was, and I was okay. just like, oh, buddy. Okay, come well, on. With, how old were they? Mid twenties. We, we're old. I'm putting you in my. Age. Well, how old? I think I might be older than I'm you. I'm 32. I'm 33. Okay. So I am older yeah. than you. Yeah. Well. Yeah. But uh, it's not like you're 43. No, no, no. Thank God. Yeah. Thank um, God. I don't want to die. <laughs> anyway. Uh, no, but that like comedy was just a big thing. Like I, I, I have like strong memories of like making friends in middle school over Mitch Hedberg albums. Oh hell yeah. Um and shit like that. So. Uh, my, my dad. Uh, one night. This this happened the same night. Yeah, yeah. We were going to the laundromat. Yeah. And he turned to me at a red light as my, my parents were separated. He was ostensibly destitute. Yeah. And uh, it was like, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about killing myself. Oh no. I was Eleven. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck, man? And then like we went because he I had a Doug Stanhope. Yeah. Day. We're waiting after the our shits in the washer. Yeah. yeah. Wait. I put the CD and we're. 20 minutes later, crying, laughing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the beauty of comedy. It's yeah, like, it can bring you, you back from a lot of brains. Yeah. put a bullet in my head and, like, to, this is the funniest shit I've ever And, and comedy life. for sure helped me a lot with yeah. my depression in high school. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, also, like, I was a big Who's Line fan, too. Same. Just yeah, yeah. And I would get into I arguments. Styles. I loved Ryan Styles. I loved Colin Mockery. Colin um, but I would so get into arguments. My brother would be like, well, they come up with this beforehand. And I would be like, no, you can't come up with this right. beforehand. Doesn't mean that they can't come up with right. this beforehand. People, it's a gateway. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a gateway drug. Yeah, to, to worse things. Listen, 
Kids, listen up. It's man time. Yeah. Get to the fence. While you're on recess, he says, hey, you want to try an improv you want to You want to zip-zap-zop with you me, kiddo? Zip, you want a yes-and with me? Uh... That guy's trying to. Eat, that's a gateway activity. Yeah. You're gonna, you're gonna be doing. You're gonna be mainlining stand-up comedy within the next six months. I, Correct. I guarantee. Just, you. just cut right. Cut out the middleman because there's also a sixty percent chance that that man is a man of power in improv, so he's also still a creep. Oh. So you need to uh, free yourself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that might get some clap back, but fuck it. Uh, <laughs> but no. But then, um, so in college, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I was graduating yeah. with a degree in journalism. That'll happen. Um, and uh, I was like. Broadcasting. Oh, uh, mine was print. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, um, it was very much a, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I don't think it's going to be journalism because I can see, like, the writing on the wall here. There's no way to really do what I want to do. Yeah, you got a uh, face for radio. Thank you. It's, so kind. You're so welcome. Um, and then, uh, so then I was like, I'm going to go to grad school for education because I, you know, worst comes worst, even if I don't use it right away, I can see myself becoming a teacher someday. Yeah. Um, I then. I can uh, see that. Yeah, and I still might. Um, but it was very early on I realized teaching at a public school mm. is not for me. I would love no, to teach at a college. A Correct. Um, then one day I ran into, in the student union, there was a guy being like, hey, we're doing a stand-up class, and then we're doing a stand-up comedy contest next week. And I was like, oh, shit, I didn't know people could just do this. You know, I didn't know, like, I didn't, when does an open mic, for a permit. I thought open mic was for, like, poetry and music. I didn't even sure. know that okay. it was a comedy thing. Right, I was right. like, I was 22. Yeah, um, because so, you're, you're, and my experience at that point with stand-up. Yeah, was, it was non-existent. It was right. like watching people do it who had been like hired to do it. I'd never yeah. gone to someone just, oh, hey, I'm doing stand-up here. No, it was never that. No. Um, I, I did stand-up in high school for one semester. Oh, yeah? yeah and then we performed at a local co- uh, uh, coffee shop. How but, was it? Oh, it was horrible. I, oh. I think I did something about like it would be great if Rosie O'Donnell was president for some reason. All right. Well, at least you tried. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it has no legs. Not, no. Not, not even now. I don't I'm even like, want to know where it was going, to be perfectly frank with you. And it's probably for the best. We've all dodged a bullet. Yeah. Uh, but then, uh, so I started, so I took that class, and like, hey, we're doing an open mic tomorrow night. And I'm like, I'm not doing it. I don't, I was like very anxious. Um, I did not want to do an open mic in front of people I didn't know. So like, I'm not going to do the open mic. I might do the competition if I can write a set. Mm-hmm. Competition was a week later. Um, I worked on that set. For probably the week and a half, I think I worked on it every day. I was working on joke ideas. I filled a notebook, um, or at least I filled one section of a three-section notebook. And then uh, I specifically remember that. Um, and then I went and did the competition. And I was like, I drank beforehand because I yeah. needed to have something in me. Yeah, a little Dutch courage. Exactly. And then I won. I won the comedy competition. Get out of here. Yeah, there were only out of there were either seven or nine performers. Wow. And only three of them had done stand-up before. Wow. Um, and one I of wonder, them... I wonder how they felt. <laughs> I, probably not. One of them is this dude I fucking hate who nice. lives in Portland nice, now, dude. but he doesn't do stand-up anymore. He got nice. banned from the Kelly's mic. I watched it happen. Oh, that's, but a, he, that's he, a beautiful thing. He's still in my phone as do not answer. Um, <laughs> because before this competition, he was, one, super confident he was going to win. And two, the prize was an, a touch iPod. It was, it was like a oh, phone wow. without the phone capabilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was an iPod touch. And he goes, if when I win, I'm going to put this phone in a baggie, put it in my ass cheeks, and smash it. And I was just like, why why tell me this? But also, even if you smash it in a baggie, you're still going to get cut up by the phone parts, dude. And he didn't even place. That was the best part of it. Dude dude was so confident, didn't even fucking place. Love to see it. It was amazing. Love to see it. Um, but yeah, so that's how I started. And then uh, I did it for off and on for the rest of grad school. Okay. And then I still consider that like my trying it out. And then I got serious moved to Chicago. And here I am now. Of all the things to try in college. I mean, I tried a lot of things. Comedy was the only one that stuck. <laughs> and I don't drink anymore because of comedy, so that's, okay. a, that's a fun combo. Oh, yeah. yeah. Alcoholism runs hand-in-hand with a lot of comedians, it you know? It sure does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it sure does. I, I, uh, I drank a lot when I first started. Yeah, it was, my, it was. I had to relearn. It was all an anxiety cover. Like, I would have to get oh, buzzed sure. yeah, before going yeah. on stage. Yeah. And then I quit because it was like, you know, it's a depressive. And, I, and um, I still drink. Sure, sure, but, sure. But like, you know, it's it, not to the degree. I wasn't. I was having like three whiskeys. Just. To I do was like, drinking two pitchers every open mic I did. Yeah. And it was. That's uh, yeah, it sure was. So was mine. Yeah. Um. Uh. But then I got to a point where I'm like, I'm gonna stop. And then, uh, if I can, and I tried to come back a couple of times, and then it spiraled. Like it kept going both times. So I was just like, I think I just gotta quit. And I maybe I could go back someday, but I don't consider that an option. You know, just no, for my own. No, not without stuff. cocaine. Um. I mean, why not? So, so what was your first exposure to science fiction novels in particular? So novels was probably, 
like people like, oh hey, here's a book that adds comedy to it. So I started read. I read Hitchhiker's Guide, and I read all of those. Right. Pretty neat. Great book. Um, so that was, and that's when I read the the robot stuff from uh, Asimov, right. and that's yeah. when I read a lot of his short stories. That's when I read. Uh, I started Dick for the first time. Yeah, I regret. Eh, that sentence is no, that's mostly okay. accurate. In, in um, the sci-fi realm, starting Dick means means starting to read prolific sci-fi author Philip K. Dick. Dick. And then there was um, uh, Bradbury. Um, it was uh, Bradbury was my first start. See, now he was close because I had a copy of Fahrenheit 451, but then I couldn't get in. Like I tried reading it a couple times, I couldn't get into it. My grandfather gave me a copy of The Illustrated Man. Oh, I bet that would make I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy. Did you? Did it stick with you? Oh yeah, I still have. It's a, I have a copy of it in my go bag. But there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got to be ready. Uh, yeah, for sure. To survive that sweet, sweet with, radiation. With everything thing. going on now, buddy, who <laughs> yeah, knows? Who knows? The, this, the sky could light up any second. <laughs> oh, that's pretty. Yeah. I feel like we'd hear sirens for like thirty seconds beforehand. Who is your favorite character in the gods themselves? So, um, it would, it would definitely be probably the trilogy, um, specifically Dua, but I really liked. Um, the Trit stuff, especially because Trit is like clearly the one the most out of their element, uh, out of his element, um, and it was uh, that, the, gen- the gendering, yeah, of the trifecta. <laughs> Sorry, the g- <laughs> I've been vibing a little dupe of my own. <laughs> um, Make that smoke, baby. <laughs> oh, that sweet, sweet, sweet cancer. Although it is just marijuana, so yeah, I, I think it. you're fine. Yeah, probably. I think that, I think that does the opposite of cancer. Uh, but yeah, it would definitely be Dua um, uh, because I liked a lot of what she was doing. Yeah. Um, because I liked that there were depths to her. She didn't like to be put in a box. I like any character that doesn't like to be put in a box. Yeah. Uh, in fact, if you had a story about someone who was consistently just changing boxes all the time, that would because I, I feel like we all do that. Especially you know, I'm in my early thir- early mid thirties. But anybody who's not in a box. Uh, who refuses to be put in the box society holds for them, I, be- yeah. I immediately, like, relate to. Yeah. So that, ama- that makes them my favorite character. Right on. Um, I- I'd have to say, for me, it's Lamont. Sure, Lamont's a great character. Because I I'm, I could see myself being a man on the streets, like, no, the pub, we can't use yeah. it! We can't, de- it's killing everybody! Well, his his rage and yeah. uh, trying to work with the system and then getting annoyed with the system yeah. was very, rela- especially with, like, everything going on right now with, like, the global warming and shit. Oh, yeah. Well, I can, I, I mean, I can see, like, the parallel between Lamont and uh, Leo's character in Don't Look Up. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong, I did not like Don't Look Up. Uh, I think it was a way too heavy-handed of a metaphor. <laughs> no, um, but uh, But uh, I absolutely agree with that. Especially, except Lamont... I got a little Denison in me though too. Sure, I think I think I have a lot of Denison in me. Bitch yeah, just being like this is uh, one for. But also, I like that Denison was like, I need to find my own place, and if I need to move everything to find that place, I'll do it. And I very much enjoyed that aspect. Of it. I liked all of the protagonists, mm. which is rare in a book. Usually, I find one that I don't really care for. Right. This one was just like, all oh, these characters seem pretty cool. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Should we call you the pump? Oh, boy. Oh, buddy. Well, because they they find this convenient third option. Well, I mean, it it does make sense. But also, it follows follows a rule for science fiction that I hate, which is like, we are going to... Because I don't really... And nowadays, I don't read a lot of hard science fiction because I don't like how... One, I hate the rules of physics. Because it makes the Why? magic well, and this, wonder. Well, this is talking about the rules of thermo- yes. thermodynamics. Sure, sure, sure. But I hate them because it makes it, me—it makes the world less wonder in my mind. Yeah. So the more I understand them, the more I get like depressed. You know what I mean? Right. There's like a finality to it. There's yes. not a lot of room for wiggle room. Exactly. But I, I'm sure there is. I mean, just because this sure. is what we're able to perceive in our right, there should be so many levels that we can't. But at the yeah, time when I'm reading it, I'm just like, I hate it. Yeah. You know. And, I, right. and here's the thing: I didn't hate the story at all. I just right. don't like that. That's just like why I avoid the, the yeah. genre typically. Yeah, yeah. But, I, but my issue with it is like, hey, here are the rules. We're going to explain a lot of those rules. Yeah. It's going to make a lot of sense. But when there's something that we, as, as a mom, as a writer, could not scientifically explain, it would become a very much like a, well, it's too technical to explain. <laughs> or, uh, as we already know, right. kind of thing. And right, I, right. That, that is a complaint I have with like science fiction. Yeah, sometimes that does come across, you know, like, like okay, like, as we already know, yeah. atomic structure is d- unstable. Yes. Like, you know, this, that, and the third. And it's like, um... Do we know that? I, I mean, 
mean, I remember atomic structure from chemistry, you know, like, yeah. And I'm not, like, shitting on it. It is not my preference. That said, it also has to be done that way to write the story you want to It does. It does have to be done that way. So I'm not shitting on it. You have to package it up. Yeah. It's not. It's not bad. Yeah. At the and end there's of the nothing day. wrong with a bow on it. You know? No, no. But it, at least it wasn't like shoehorned in. Yeah. You know, I will. Say, I will say. I think the older, the fifty-something man sleeping with like the hot, attractive, gravity that right. was very much a like personal thing that Admiral yes. was like, "Well, this is for me." Yes. You know what I mean? This was a dream of the damper variety yeah, yeah, that, yeah. He, that he put in. Not of not of the intergalactic variety, but like I mean, well, you have to uh, addressing sexuality in science fiction is something that is is not necessarily taboo. No, I, I, I feel yeah. like it might be a little bit now because I feel like a lot of things are put in boxes again, and so to have a sexy sci-fi book was like, oh, that's just smut. No, it can be sci-fi with some sexiness, yeah. but a lot of people won't necessarily see it that way. I mean, I've, I've watched 50, 50 Shades of, of Grey. Did was, you? Uh, if they added, if if they added robots. Yeah, yeah, why not? I yeah. mean, honestly, I might too. I think that's just Metropolis at that point. Um, <laughs> Which we're going to cover. I'm going to do an episode with Kyle. I've actually never seen it. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, yeah, I want to. Oh, um, we should all, uh, well, we'll, Kyle and I will we'll do Mushrooms and we'll, we'll all watch it together. Oh, yeah, I'd be down for that. Yeah, yeah? yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Do you think that we'll ever, because we don't have, like, another hyper-intelligent Correct. side to our yeah. fuck-uppery. Sure, that we know of. That we know of. So, I, I try to be an optimist when it comes to things like that. Um, that I think that the issues that we are currently having, it when it gets to a dire point, granted, maybe it already has gotten to a dire point, we're just fucked. But I like to believe that when it does get to a point where we need to do more work, people will step up. And even if I'm wrong, that's fine. I've been yeah. wrong before. I'll be wrong again. That's so true. Um, so, Jamie, where's the next place that we can hear you perform? When is this coming up? The 29th, I so guess. So, yeah. you can see me on uh, March uh, 7th. Okay. Uh, I'm going to be at It's Going to Be Okay, um, which is a great indie show. It's yeah. a bar I've forgotten the name of in uh, Portland. That's okay. And then... Uh, it's a good bar. It's a great bar. Um, it's also a good room, and uh, the guy who hosts it, uh, Lewis, he's, uh, he's great. Nice. And uh, the 12th, I'm doing Sorry Not Sorry at, I think cool. it's Lecum Brewery? Lycum Brewery? Lycum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like L-E-I-C-H-U-M or something. Anyway, both great shows, um, great lineups. Uh, if you're in town, you want to check it out, come, please, hang. You'll post to your Instagram? Yeah, I'll post it to Instagram. I'll post it on my Twitter, um, which is where I'm probably a little too prolific. But, uh, yeah, dude, thank you for, honestly, thank you for suggesting this book. Yeah, thank uh, you for reading it. I enjoyed I it. it. I really yeah. did. Sorry, I, didn't, I forgot it with me. Um, it is a little worn now, so if you want me to replace it, I can. No, that's okay. That okay. just means it's been well loved. That is also how I feel about it. As yeah. long as, as I have a belief, as long as the spine is intact, yeah. we're all good. You yeah. know what I mean? You uh, and Ted Bundy alike. All right. <laughs> get out on a lap. Yeah, get out on a lap. <laughs> you too. Make sure you stick around for the end of this episode for Jamie's set from the Schmitza Mike. He is hilarious and super knowledgeable on all things nerdy. But wait, what's that sound? <sighs> That's right, folks. It's time for this week's water cooler facts. Since we just reviewed the book's plot, let's get into some facts behind the author Isaac Asimov. Asimov was born in Petrovichy, Russia, to a family of Jewish millers on an unknown date somewhere between October 4th, 1919 and January 2nd, 1920, inclusive. Asimov happened to celebrate his birthday on January 2nd. He became a science fiction fan in 1929 when he began reading the pulp magazine sold in his family's candy store. At first, his father forbade reading pulps as he considered them to be trash until Asimov persuaded him that because the science fiction magazines had science in the title, they must be educational. Smart kid. After two rounds of rejection by medical schools and a stint in zoology, Asimov applied to the graduate program in chemistry at Columbia in 1939. Initially, he was rejected out of hand and then only accepted on a probationary basis, where he completed his Master of Arts degree in chemistry in 1941 and earned a Doctor of Philosophy degree in chemistry in 1948. In 1942, Asimov published the first of his Foundation series, which was his most famous and later collected in the Foundation trilogy, including Foundation in 1951, Foundation and Empire in 1952, and Second Foundation in 1953. The books recount the fall of a vast interstellar empire and the establishment of its eventual successor. 
They also feature his fictional science of psychohistory in which the future course of the history of large populations can be predicted. The trilogy and robot series are undoubtedly his most famous science fiction, and in 1966 they won the Hugo Award for the all-time best series of science fiction and fantasy novels, which is probably why Foundation was the favorite science fiction of the Japanese death cult Aum Shinrikyo, who carried out sarin gas attacks in busy Tokyo subway stations in 1995. Now, that's not to say that the novels uh, inspired those attacks directly, I'm sure they didn't, but rather the nerd concept of a galactic empire that they were meant to usurp and, like, bring through their own hyper-nerdy version. I mean, I don't really see how Saren ties in with it, but, um, you know, their ideology was vast and rather vague, so... At any rate, uh, Asimov's Positronic Robot series, many of which were collected in iRobot, uh, published in 1950, were begun at about the same time. Uh, they promulgated a set of rules or ethics for robots known as the Three Laws of Robotics. Let's go over those laws, actually. The first law is that a robot may not injure a human being or, through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. The second law is that a robot must obey the orders given it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And the third and final law is that a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Now, what does that all mean? Um, you know, basically, Asimov notes that his introduction of the short story collection, The Complete Robot, uh, that he was largely inspired by the almost relentless tendency of robots up to that time to fall consistently into like a Frankensteinish plot in which they destroyed their creators. Basically, this uh, allowed for uh, more expansive writing under these rules because you couldn't have a plot where a robot is just going to be, you know, Scooby-Doo unveiled as the guy who done it. If it weren't for those meddling kids. I would have destroyed my creator. Many of Asimov's science fiction novels, either by original design or later reconnecting, uh, take place in the same shared universe. Most prominently in that universe, we find Foundation, but the robot novels, Pebbles in the Sky, The Currents of Space, and many others all take place in this same shared universe. Asimov wrote more than just science and popular fiction. I mean, he wrote over 380 short stories alone. And in addition to his interest in science, Asimov was also interested in history. Starting in the 1960s, he wrote 14 popular history books, and in 1987, the Asimovs collectively co-wrote How to Enjoy Writing, A Book of Aid and Comfort. In it, they offer advice on how to maintain a positive attitude and stay productive when dealing with discouragement, distractions, rejection, and thick-headed editors. The book includes many quotations, essays, anecdotes, and husband-wife dialogues about the ups and downs of being an author. In 1977, Asimov suffered a heart attack, and in December 1983, he had a triple bypass surgery at the NYU Medical Center, during which he contracted HIV from a blood transfusion. His HIV status was kept secret out of concern that the anti-AIDS prejudice at the time might extend to his family members. In 1984, the American Humanist Association named him the Humanist of the Year. He was one of the signers of the Humanist Manifesto. And from 1985 until his death in 1992, he served as president of the AHA, an honorary appointment. His successor was his friend and fellow writer Kurt Vonnegut. He was also a close friend of Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry and earned a screen credit as special science consultant on Star Trek The Motion Picture for advice he gave during production. He died in Manhattan on April 6, 1992, and was cremated. The cause of death was reported as heart and kidney failure. However, 10 years following Asimov's death, Janet and Robin Asimov agreed that the HIV story should be made public. Janet revealed it in her edition of his autobiography, It's Been a Good Life. Well, hopefully the interesting life and stories of Isaac Asimov will inspire you to read some of his material and early sci-fi in general. See, there was a time before streaming services where one would read words on a page and use their imagination to fill in the blanks instead of CGI. Read books! Next week we have another first for Science Factual because we're going to cover the Alan Moore classic graphic novel series and movie, Watchmen. I'll be getting into all sorts of facts and character analysis as well as an interview with my hebro, Jake Silberman, Portland comic 
powerhouse. As always, my thanks to you, the listener, for listening, to my wonderful wife, Amanda, for being my research and life partner, even though early sci-fi isn't really her thing. And that's okay. However, my thanks wouldn't be complete without sending love to my family over at Shady Pines Radio. You can catch a lot of awesome shows each and every day at almost any given time by downloading the Shady Pines Radio app, wherever apps are procured. In the meantime, you can catch me each and every Tuesday from 8 to 9 a.m. on Shady Pines Radio and anytime on Spotify and Mixcloud. Since you've been so good this episode listening to me nerd out about Asimov, here's your reward. Check out this super funny set from J.B. Carbone at the Schmitza Mic. Enjoy! Be fucked. That's a fun fact about you for nerds. A fucking swing dick like it's going out of style. Kind of help you out, bro. Been a nerd my whole life. That's true. Been a nerd my whole ass life. And I've learned in my, I'm not going to say how old I am, in my time on this planet, that there are three kinds of nerds. There's three kinds. So you all might be approached at a party or something by a nerd trying to figure out which one you're trying to deal with. I'll teach you how to figure it out. Chris, can I help me out with this? Cool. Chris, I'm going to ask you a question. Just answer it the same way each time. Okay, Chris, this is how you know it's the first kind of nerd. Who is your favorite superhero? Spider-Man. And when you say Spider-Man, do you mean Tony Wire? Do you mean Andrew Garfield? Do you mean the kid who's doing it? Are you talking about the 90s cartoon? Are you talking about the early 2000s cartoon? Are you talking about the late 2000s cartoon? Are you talking about the 1970s cartoon? Or are you talking about the comic books? Do you like the whole Bendis run? Or do you like when Brubaker does it? Do you like the Zdarsky shit? And I would do this to him for six hours. Because I don't know how to read context clues. And that is the first kind of nerd. Alright, that's one. Here is the second kind of nerd, alright? The second kind. Chris, who is your favorite superhero? Spider-Man. Cool. That is the second kind of nerd. <laughs> the second kind. I don't want you to think I'm that first dude, so I'm just going to play it chill. Make up some lies about sports. That's the second kind of nerd. And finally, here's the third kind of nerd. This is where I'm currently at. Chris. Who is your favorite superhero? Spider-Man. Cool. Do you know what hentai is? <laughs> Those are the three kinds of nerds. Oh if you don't know what hentai is, Google it. <laughs> Have yourself a nice evening. You know, really, really make right with the Lord. That's my suggestion. I got a new job, everybody, huh? Isn't that cool? Thank you. I got a new job. It's an office job, and I don't know how to fit in. I don't. Every morning as people are hanging out and just making small talk, talking about what the weather is going to be like this weekend or what the traffic was like driving in, I am standing there with every fiber of my being telling myself, do not talk about gargoyles right now. (laughs) Nobody wants to hear your theories. No matter how accurate they may be, you know? I don't fit in here. I don't want to work this job. Problem was, I've had a lot of cool jobs. I used to work at a comic book shop. That was my favorite. That's why I was able to do that bit. Also, also, I've done that bit a couple dozen times at this point. No one has ever thrown out a superhero that has stumped me. That's a fun fact about that. Someone did Spawn once, and then I just started saying things about Spawn. I didn't know I knew. It was like I clicked into a robot mode and just started saying Michael J. White over and over again. <laughs> I'm a non-binary person. That's a fun fact about me. Thank you, one ally. The rest of you can eat shit. I am a non-binary person. I don't dress. Um, I don't dress uh, like a non-binary, like androgynously, because this is a fun fact. Non-binary people don't owe you androgyny. You deserve to be comfortable in their own fucking skin. But also, a second fact about it is that non-androgynous clothing. It, androgynous, sorry, just regular androgynous clothing is expensive as fuck. <laughs> I cannot pay two hundred dollars for basically a burlap sack. I can. I don't have that kind of money. I have GameStop T-shirt money. That's what I have <laughs> financially. <laughs> My name is Jamie Carbone. That's my 
regular name. A lot of people, when they come out as non-binary, they change it as part of their journey. But for them, I didn't change mine. I kept it for what it was because Jamie, pretty androgynous name. I'm gonna keep wrestling with this the whole time. <laughs> I figured it out. <laughs> Carbone, pretty good last name, you know? Keep it like that. It's Italian, it means carbon or coal in Italy. And in America, it means a bunch of strangers are gonna call you boner. So I kept it, I like that. <laughs> but I met someone the other day, and they said congratulations on changing your name as part of your journey. And I immediately hated this person. <laughs> because they thought if I was brave enough to change my name, that I would half-ass it to something like Jamie Carbone. <laughs> when a perfectly good Jamie truck fuck <laughs> is right there. That is <laughs> such a way better name, you know? You, were, you don't necessarily remember Jamie Carbone. You remember Jamie truck fuck, you know? <laughs> Plus, it still sounds pretty Italian, so that works for me. <laughs> All right, thank you all, Jamie. <laughs>